So just checking the sound system, anyone having a problem hearing? Okay, turn it up a little. Okay, just a hair. So is that okay now? Is that, is that better? Turn your systems on, all systems go. Okay, thanks Debbie. So I spoke in my first talk here, now a couple of weeks ago, about the first foundation of mindfulness, the foundation of our practice, mindfulness of the body, and recognizing that many of us, we're all familiar with that practice, but there's a section of the sutta, the Satipatthana Sutta, that talks about death contemplations, contemplating a decaying corpse, and that's not something that we commonly do on our retreats. And the practice that, we're, that, that goes along with this contemplation of a decaying corpse is that we should compare our own body thus. This body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. And so central, right there in the Satipatthana Sutta, the foundations of mindfulness, is this contemplation of death, and particularly our own death, that this body is of that nature. And this contemplation of death and all of the associated experiences has become, is an important reflection in the Buddha's teachings and practices and was actually central to the Buddha's own journey to awakening. Again, if you know the story of his life, was born into a wealthy family, perhaps even a prince, had every sensual desire satisfied. But when he came to this stark realization that no matter how much stuff he had, he was still going to die, he basically looked around and said, how can people stay obsessed with the stuff of everyday life? when this is what you know is waiting for you. And he was so basically afraid of old age sickness and death um, that he set out on his journey, as he said, to conquer them. And not so much to not have them happen, but to lose his fear of old age sickness and death. The, The four heavenly messengers are old age sickness, death, and then a contemplative, a monastic, someone who's turned away from the household life. So this realization for the Buddha was central on his quest for awakening. He set out to seek the deathless, the solution to this. And he talked uh, about the vanity of youth, the vanity of health, the vanity even of life, and that we can um, be intoxicated with that. And practice is to lose that vanity to lose that intoxication. And then a few days ago, Susan spoke so beautifully about compassion. Um, And it said that the proximate cause for compassion to arise is suffering, is opening to suffering, is an acceptance and and a recognition of the truth of suffering, both for ourselves and others. And that's what cultivates compassion, cultivates this open, caring, So tonight I want to kind of bring these two together to talk about the very real challenges of our lives, of these uh, heavenly messengers, and the possibility of opening to that, practicing with that in a way that brings compassion. 
um, because this is the reality of a human life, that we will get old, uh, have sickness, death, loss, there'll be grief. And our willingness to be with that, to turn and face that, not to run away, avoid, deny, but actually move into it, into the realization of that, the understanding of that. It's one of the paradoxical aspects of this practice that we turn towards suffering. We turn towards the challenges to actually find freedom from that suffering. It's what the Buddha spoke about. The first, it's right there in the first noble truth. The first noble truth is there is suffering. You have to be clear, it doesn't say life is suffering or everything is suffering. It says there is suffering. And basically, if you have a mind and a body, there will be suffering. And with each of the truths, there's a practice that's associated with it. And for the first noble truth, the practice is to understand suffering. Understand it, know its nature, know its reality, know its truth. Ajahn Sumedho translates it as in to stand under like a waterfall. That suffering can at times feel like that, that we're, you know, it's everywhere. And our willingness to be in that place, just like we'd stand under a waterfall in that drenching downpour and say, yes, this is so, this is how it is. And so we turn towards these challenges to actually find freedom and even happiness. So these four heavenly messengers and the Buddha, the, how they spurred the Buddha on, actually as he began his teachings, he turned into what's known as the five subjects for frequent recollection. It's in uh, the Anguttara Nikaya, the, the numerical discourses in the Book of Fives. Um, and it's considered so important that many monasteries around the world will chant this daily. It considered the five subjects for frequent or daily recollection. And these five are, I, have, I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I, have, I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. And then lastly, I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma. Whatever karma I shall do for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. Now they sound kind of depressing actually when I read them like that, like a little bit of a downer. But as I said, it really is the paradoxical nature of these teachings that to turn towards them and, and open to them can actually bring lightness, freedom, happiness, even joy, because we're not in fear or denial about these basic facts, these basic truths of existence. And if we have this sense of a real understanding of them, then we won't be so shaken when they actually happen. When we, we actually give everything up, what can, then can be taken away? When we have this deep and powerful understanding of the nature of reality. And so when these things happen to us, when we lose what we love, when we get old or sicken or even in, as we're dying, we see that it's not bad or wrong, not a mistake. It's not bad planning that these things are happening to us. 
It is the nature of existence that they will happen to us and to our loved ones. You've probably heard this great story, great teaching from Ajahn Chah about the bro- his a favorite glass. He says, you say, don't break my glass. Can you prevent something that's breakable from breaking? If it doesn't break now, it'll break later on. If you don't break it, someone else will. If someone else doesn't break it, one of the chickens will. I know about here, we're pretty safe from chickens, but you get the point. The Buddha says to accept this. He penetrated the truth of these things, seeing that this glass is already broken. Whenever you use this glass, you should reflect that it's already broken. Do you understand this? The Buddha's understanding was like this. He saw the broken glass within the unbroken one. He saw the broken glass within the unbroken one. Whenever its time is up, it will break. Develop this kind of understanding. Use this glass. Look after it. Until when one day it slips out of your hand. Smash. No problem. Why is there no problem? Because you saw its brokenness before it broke. And so many of you in the interviews have been talking about this kind of practice, this kind of reality in your own lives, in the lives of those you care about, the challenges, the losses, the grief. This can be a great fuel, a great motivator for our practice when we're willing to turn towards it, when we're not just running away from it. And deep wisdom and understanding can come out of that. Larry Rosenberg actually wrote, as a teacher at um, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, wrote this whole great book uh, on these five reflections, living in the light of death, because they were so powerful for him in his own life, in his own practice, that he wanted to share what he's understood. So uh, really a source of a lot of understanding, a lot of wisdom. And if we don't, if we don't open to this, if we are in denial or resistance or we get stuck, we repress, we contract around, it leads to, you might say, trauma. And I'm using that in a very broad sense of the word. Doesn't, trauma doesn't have to be, you know, the car accident. It's all of those, thing, all of those things that happen to us every day. Mark Epstein's actually written a whole book called The Trauma of Everyday Life where he says, we are all traumatized by life, by its unpredictability, its randomness, its lack of regard for our feelings and the losses it brings. But the traumas of everyday life, if they do not destroy us, become bearable, even illuminating, when we learn to relate to them differently. And so that's our practice. These things will happen, whether you call them traumas or just the facts of life, they will happen. How do we relate to them differently? How do we change our perception of them? They still have their impact, not to deny that, but to actually include them in our life and certainly in our practice. And to do this, you know, often for most people, they just come up. It's a truth. You know, you come to the retreat, 
in your life, there are losses, your own losses and losses in your families and your communities. But it can actually be an active practice, reflection, meditation. We don't tend to teach it as much in these kind of retreats. The emphasis is so much on direct experience, what's happening now. And, and the, the doorway that is to real truth and understanding. But there's a long tradition in the Buddhist path of uh, reflection meditations. The Buddha, all subsequent teachers, would often recommend students to reflect on the three jewels of Buddha Dharma Sangha, um, to bring, bring joy and happiness, faith and devotion, to reflect on the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, on not-self, to reflect on the Four Noble Truths. This is very common practices in, in Asia, to actually uh, brighten the mind a little or even challenge the mind with these reflections. So it can be very helpful to actually consciously reflect on these things. I teach a lot of retreats, um, programs especially, that aren't in silence. The Dedicated Practitioners Program, there's a similar program here, I think it's now called the ISP. Um, I teach a retreat called Living Dharma, where it's not in silence. People engage in these kind of reflections and interactive practices. And so this is one of the things we wrote to the people coming on one of these retreats. Reflections are done in a meditative way rather than in an analytical way. As we consider the question, rather than use our analytical mind, we quiet the mind in such a way that we draw on another kind of knowing that we might call an intuitive wisdom. Our analytical mind holds a database of information collected from our past. By quietening down this mind, it is possible to access information about ourselves and the way things are in new fresh and unexpected ways. So in saying this, I'm not saying you should or even encouraging you to do reflection meditations. It, it It is a different kind of practice. But as I said, many of you I know this kind of experience is just up for you. And so the willingness to do some reflection, to turn towards in a meditative way, which as I said is not thinking about it, It's actually meeting it in the present moment with what's my response here and now? What's what's up for me in relationship to that? How do I relate to this skillfully? How do I include this in my practice? Another book I read recently called Mindsight by Dan Siegel, who's a, a... a doctor who's done a lot of research into the mind and the effects of meditation, says reflection requires an attunement to the self that is supportive and kind, not a judgmental stance of interrogation and derogation. Reflection is a compassionate state of mind. So it's really wanting to meet this experience as it comes up with compassion and curiosity. Now, what's here? What does this mean for me? So it can be helpful. I teach a lot of metta retreats, and I often encourage people to use reflection in that practice as we say over and over again this wish, this aspiration. May I be happy. May you be happy. May you be safe. What does it mean to be safe? What are we actually wishing for? What does it mean to feel ha- uh, at ease? or safe. We have to know what these things are to actually truly wish for them. And so this, these, these uh, 
ideas, these supports, are just acknowledging that this is the container within which we practice. You know, this is not separate from our lives. This is our lives, that these things will happen for us and everyone we know. Old age, sickness, death, loss, and the teaching on karma. So it's really turning towards the truth, the Dhamma. This is the truth of things. So the first of these reflections is, I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. It's an indisputable fact, right? You're not the same as you were as five, at five years old. Yet people dispute it. They challenge it. They resist it. They do everything they can to avoid, deny, and, and manipulate this fact of aging. You know, plastic surgery, certain diets, exercise, all of the stuff we can do to change our bodies, our hair, etc. You know, and it's not a new thing, even though it's gotten so much more I don't know what more, you know, but the fountain of youth, right? That's been in, in archetypal mythology for, for eons. This, this quest, this refusal, this, this resistance to aging. You know, as I, as I was looking up this and, you know, what's ha- I, actually what I was looking up is that the fact that Google, you know, they've got so much money and it's like, what do they want to put it towards? And one of the things is anti-aging. You know, I don't know what they think they're going to do, but there's, there's a whole business, a whole company they've started, basically to anti-aging. So I found this site. There was bas- the site is called Fight Aging! And this is a quote. Aubrey de Grey wants to save lives. He wants to save as many as he possibly can, as soon as he can. And to do it, he's going to fix aging. Now, the first part I have no quarrel with, you know, to save lives, to, to um, you know, help people. Yes, of course we want to do that. But this idea, fix aging, means aging's wrong. Aging shouldn't happen. And it's like, you know, we've done something wrong if we're looking at wrinkles and gray hair. The body's sagging as bodies do. Um, so being healthy, great. Taking care of your body, yes. But this, I, this delusion, really, of fighting aging, anti-aging, you know, that aging is something we can actually conquer. And I always think, what do they think that's going to look like? You know, a planet of hundred-year-old people? Who who wants that? You know, it's like, I don't. You know, there's, just be realistic about it. But there's something, people are so intoxicated with youth and with life. And we live in a really ageist culture. I mean, this, this, this modern culture is very different than traditional cultures where there was a real a respect for aging and our elders and a real acknowledgement of the wisdom that was there in the people that had lived. You know, they've survived that long. You should venerate them. You know, they'd really gone through a lot of struggles. Um, and yet now it's a very different relationship. I like this piece from Larry Rosenberg, who, you know, he's a very wise, but he's also very funny. This is... I am a person who takes very good care of himself. 
I do yoga most mornings, I take long vigorous walks, I meditate a great deal, and I am careful about food supplements and the food that I eat. So right there, anyone see themselves in that? Just a little capsule description. About three years ago, when I was 63, I was on the subway in Boston coming back from a trip to the dentist. I comfort myself with the thought that I may have looked a little peaked from my dental work. I was standing there holding on to the metal rail when a young woman seated in front of me smiled and stood up and gave me her seat. I didn't realize at first quite what had happened. I thought she was getting off at the next stop. But that stop went by and the next, and I started to realize, wait a minute, a young woman just gave me her seat on the subway. My mind started racing. I wanted to say to her, you've got it all wrong. I get up and give my seat to you. I've been giving up subway seats all my life. But apparently, from her standpoint, this looked appropriate. She was a young, vigorous, healthy woman, and I, it seems, looked like a man who needed to sit down. (laughs) All my years of doing yoga, eating good food, and taking long walks were wasted. I looked my age anyway. Next time it would be, hey, Grandpa, how'd you like a seat? Or slow down, old timer, let me help you with those packages. My self-image as a youthful, bouncy, older man, an image I didn't even know I had, had been smashed to pieces. This was not a bad experience. It was actually good. A young woman made a courteous gesture, and I got to take a load off my feet. It was what I did with it before my awareness returned and I had a good laugh at myself that mattered. It was a modern-day rite of passage, an initiatory moment that let me know I was in a new category. It shattered my self-image. So this is the truth for all. Whatever you know, we're doing to take care of ourselves, whatever image we have, it is changing. And, you know, we often are holding on to a view of ourselves from some time ago. So how do we embrace this very fact of our aging? I'm sure all of us know people who are inspirations in that sense, who even as they age, say, you know, without having an illusion about the aging, are bright and alert and, and active and engaged. I had a friend, she, had, she died not so long ago, but un- until she died... You know, she struggled in her aging process. She was an artist and she had macular degeneration, so she was losing her sight. She had definitely problems with her body, but she became more and more luminescent as she grew older. Like, uh, we used to think of her as a being of light. And even with all these struggles, when I'd go visit with her, she'd be smiling and so full of gratitude for her life and her friends and the Dhamma. It was really very inspiring. And so the Buddha had this realization, too, um, not to hold himself separate from aging. Again, in the text they say, when an untaught ordinary person who is subject to aging, not safe from aging, sees another who is aged, she is shocked, humiliated, and disgusted, for she forgets that she herself is no exception. But I too am subject to aging, not safe from aging, so it cannot benefit me to be shocked, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another who is aged. When I considered this, the vanity of youth entirely left me. 
So he was still young. It didn't change his age. But the vanity of youth left him. And as I said, in, in some texts they talk about it, the intoxication with youth or with, with health. We can really lose our perspective when we're in this image or desire around uh, this nature of the body. And so even though we might be young, we might be healthy, we're not yet dead, to see that we're not immune to that changing, that this is the truth of things, and that youth is a vanity, health is a vanity. We can't own it, we can't control it, and we certainly can't take credit for it. We don't carry it with us because it changes. And so old age is actually a blessing. I mean, if we're lucky enough to reach old age and go through that, many people don't, you know, and die. We never know when death will come. And so many of my friends, you know, are getting around the same age, saying that these older years are the best of their lives. And there can really be a powerful um, truth to that, that as we do get wiser, I mean, whether it's practice or what, you know, we do learn from our mistakes and not so crazy as we used to be. We figured some things out. And not to diminish the challenges of aging. You know, I see in my friends, I see it, my own body changing. Definitely there are challenges. But how to actually be with that in a way that lets us honor that process rather than deny it. It's not a mistake. It's not bad or wrong that aging is happening. So the next reflection, I am of the nature to sicken. Illness. I have not gone beyond illness. It's very related, but you know, we can be ill at any, any stage of life. We can have minor illnesses or really life-threatening, challenging chronic illnesses. When we confront illness in others, we can often have that, you know, experience of pity or denial, you know, wanting to put it, push it away, not wanting to accept it. Um, Stephen Levine says, so he's done a lot of work on aging and dying. When your fear touches someone's pain, it becomes pity. When your love touches someone's pain, it becomes compassion. So it's talking about, again, meeting these experiences, whether it's our own illness or someone else's illness, with kindness, with acceptance that can bring the compassion that allows us to truly open to this truth. So it begins with, even if we're currently healthy, disabusing ourselves of the vanity of health. You know, it's kind of like you don't know how good it is not to have a toothache until you have a toothache, right? Yet, most days we wake up and we don't have a toothache. How can we really appreciate that? And yet not hold on to it, because someday soon we will have a toothache, or whatever it is. So we appreciate the health we have, but we don't own it. And we use the health, the energy we have, you know, to actually serve others, to let that compassion move into action, so that we can... Uh, actually support those who are struggling with whatever challenges they have. And then when we're actually sick, whether it's a minor temporary thing or something more challenging, what would it be like to actually practice with that? 
And I'm, you know, I'm not speaking from some place of saying I always do this, but I really see the challenge and the opportunity of that. And again, Larry talks about in his book about how often, you know, he said, I'll have my Sangha CIMC in Boston, Cambridge, and people will disappear for a while and they'll come back and they say, oh, where were you? And, oh, I was sick. And what did you do with that? Oh, you know, I just laid in bed and watched movies, read magazines until I felt better again. He's like, you missed an opportunity. And here on retreat, you know, wouldn't of course wish that anyone be ill or suffering here on retreat, but it's a great place to learn how to practice with it. You don't have many obligations, a few things you have to show up for every now and then. What is it? What would it be like to actually meet that experience, to open to it with mindfulness? And what is it like to really take care of yourself, to bring compassion in, not, not they call it idiot compassion, you know, oh, just go to bed, just, just, you know, flake out until you can kind of wake up again. And, you know, I'm not, again, sometimes we need to do that. We need to take ourselves to bed. That's, of course, always possible. But to actually meet the experience. A friend, student of, of mine, Tony Bernhard, had written a whole book called How to Be Sick. It's been very helpful for people, where she really, she, she was an active, healthy woman. She was on a trip to Europe, to France, I think. She got some kind of bug and never recovered. It turned into, you know, what they call chronic fatigue. Who knows what, what, what it actually is. Really, totally debilitating, totally changed her life. So she had to draw on every resource she had. And, you know, she talks about her challenges, so there are resources out there. But she said one of the big parts of her was her Buddhist practice and the first noble truth. There is suffering. This is not a mistake. And being willing to just relax into that and not think that she was bad or wrong or this shouldn't be happening. So how do we do that? And, of course, it's such a great teacher when we're sick. All my friends, people you read about who have life-challenging illnesses, who are dying, say it's sometimes the greatest gift, the greatest teacher, putting things in perspective. When we have these challenges, what are our priorities? When things get so clear about what's important. A little while ago I read this biography of Suzuki Roshi, that great Zen teacher, San Francisco Zen Center. And this was a piece by Yvonne Rand when he, uh, Suzuki Roshi was ill. Initially, his doctor was quite certain he had, Suzuki Roshi had hepatitis. And so we did all the quarantine stuff that goes with it. None of the usual things happened. He didn't get better when he should have. So eventually he went to Mount Zion for some tests. By that time, we had gone through several weeks of his having to eat on separate plates and all of the work of keeping his dishes separate. It was a drag. He didn't like it. He was used to a much easier atmosphere, the practical details of getting the food to him, etc. I went to see him after he'd been in hospital a couple of days. When I got to his room, the doctor and a couple of specialists had just left, and he motioned me in and asked me to sit down on the bed next to him. He said, I have cancer. He just mouthed the words as if he was telling me some good news in a whisper. His lunch had just been brought in. It was on a table by his bed. He patted the seat next to him and said, Now we can eat together off the same plate. And he began to feed me some of his lunch. 
he'd have a bite and then I'd have a bite, which is what we couldn't do as long as we thought he had hepatitis. And he said, this cancer is my friend and my practice will be to take care of this sickness. I have cancer. It's just a different way of relating to it. And again, not to diminish the challenge of of these serious diagnoses. But this cancer is my friend and my practice will be to take care of this sickness because it's here, because it's the truth. And so this is the nature of the body, to age and to sicken. As I said in my first talk, our body is our vehicle for awakening. So we want to take care of it. We want to value it, honor it. But its nature is to decay. It's a fact. And it's also true that mindfulness of the body can be healing. And again, not forecasting miracles here, even if it's a mental healing through acceptance. But like I said, Bob Stahl, who teaches that mindfulness of the body practice, 32 parts of the body, has many stories of people healing and lessening their symptoms through just this sustained um, mindfulness of the body. It's really quite amazing. And it's not the reason that we meditate, but it's powerful. The relaxation, the calmness, the acceptance, the equanimity can actually be transforming of our ability to be with challenges like this. The next reflection, I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. As I was putting this together, I realized these are all huge. You know, I could spend an evening talking about each one, so just to say a little bit on this. I'm of the nature to die. It's the biggest mystery, right? Billions, countless billions of people have died, and we still don't really know what happens, right? There are all these theories out there, religious theories, spiritual theories, different ideologies. We don't know. I think it's in the Bhagavad Gita, I couldn't find where this quote came from, but it's something like Krishna asks Arjuna or someone asks someone, "What's what's the greatest miracle in this world? And this God, this deity figure says something like, the greatest miracle is that everyone's going to die and they live as though they're not. You know, just this, again, resistance, avoidance, denial of this basic truth of life. Stephen Levine, who does all those workshops on uh, living and dying, he said he regularly begins it, you know, a group of people in a room, and his first question is, okay, so who here's going to die? And he says, it always takes a couple of minutes before people sort of look around and go, oh, me, you know, that's why I'm here, I'm going to die. And he talks about going to visit a nursing home and this very elderly woman, probably in her 90s, and she said her, she just kept saying, why me, why me? Why me? And it's why, because it's the truth for all of us. There is no exception. There has not been an exception yet. Even the Buddha is not exempt from this truth. So I'm sure all of you have your experience with this. We certainly, as we get to a certain age, it just becomes more and more of a reality. The people we know, you know, you look at the, I sometimes read the obituaries just to, just as a practice, really, to, to see, you know, people are dying all the time and all the loss and grief and love that's represented there. And I always look, how old were they? Like, oh, they were my age. Wow. You know, to me too. But my big conduit to dying is my father. 
who is still in Australia. My mother died now many years ago, um, 13, no, 17 years ago, and he's now 88. So I call him regularly, just spoke to him the other day, and there is pretty much not a phone call that doesn't begin with, do you remember the hills? Because we lived, he lived in the same house for, I don't know, 50 years, so he knew everyone in the neighborhood. He was also the church organist, so he went to a lot of funerals. So the conversation, do you remember the hills? They lived around the corner, and I think Janine was in your class, and the old, and I'm like, kind of dead. Well, she died, you know. <laughs> And so it's always, you know, and there's so-and-so from his work. He was in the, a bank for years, all his whole life worked with his bank. It's like, yeah, read the, he reads the obituaries, the first place he turns in the paper. And so he's got all these euphemisms. Oh, yeah, so-and-so, he's fallen off his perch. Oh, yeah, so-and-so, past her use-by date, you know. And we have this way of talking about death, right? You remember the, the, the parrot sketch in Monty Python? I was, was going to read that, but that's a bit too much. Just taking a rest. Oh, it's dead. Um, I get distracted by that. Because we don't want to face it right. All these euphemisms, these ways of, you know, uh, not really dealing with it. Yet, talk about putting your priorities in order. I found this article online. A nurse reveals the top five regrets people make on their deathbed. I won't read them all, but she, you know, she had a lot of experience with this. One, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. She said, this was the most common of all. Second, I wish I didn't, hadn't worked so hard. Said this came from every male patient that I nursed, probably more and more women too. They miss their children's youth, their partner's companionship. And she talks about making conscious choices to simplify so you can actually be there for your life. You know, no one dies saying, I wish I'd completed that you know, work task 10 years ago or you know, got more done in, in the office. Three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Many people express their feelings in order to keep peace. I wish I'd expressed them. I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. Get to that stage in life and you don't, you've lost them. You don't know where they are. You can't get in touch with them. I wish, last one, I wish I'd let myself be happier. This is a surprisingly common one. Many did not realize until the end that happiness is a choice. They had stayed stuck in old habits and patterns. The so-called comfort of familiarity overflowed into their emotions, as well as their physical lives, fear of change, etc. These are the things that are important. While we're alive, how to reflect on what's really important for us. And so the Buddha says, do this, turn to this, not to be morbid or depressing, you know, not to kind of collapse, but to actually engage in life, the preciousness of it. I think I mentioned Venerable Analeo's practice. He kind of uh, simplified the death contemplation. See, he teaches a practice where you practice all four satipatthanas at every sitting. So it's like, this is kind of busy. But for the death ones, uh, he teaches in-breath, could be the last breath. So you really have that sense. This could be my last breath. 
but on the out-breath you relax fully. And you just do that. You know, and sometimes it has an impact, sometimes not. Sometimes it's really challenging. He actually says that every night when he goes to bed, I think he said, I can't remember this exactly, but I think he gets in, you know, the corpse posture, where he, Shavasana, lies there, and fully imagines that he's dying. He said, I do that every night. I sleep, it's very calm, very peaceful, and I sleep very well. He's got an unusual mind, I do admit that, but, you know, it's just, he's really present for that. This is not something that he's denying. So it isn't to be morbid or depressing, it's really to clarify for us. What do we love? What What's precious for us? What are our priorities? How awake can we be in this life? The classic poem that speaks to this, you probably know, The Summer Day by Mary Oliver. Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So this contemplation is really an invitation into life and the preciousness of this life. The fourth contemplation, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Again, this is challenging to really, to hear this, to contemplate this, but it's the truth. It's acknowledging the characteristic of impermanence, said to be characteristic of everything conditioned. And that includes everything here on this relative level. Everything is impermanence. And we're seeing it here. I mean, this is such a great time of year to practice. The weather is so changeable. You know, the clouds scud through, the leaves and their change, from the greens to these brilliant golds and reds, and then they're gone. You know, and just even in the days that I've been here, the change is so palpable. And so all kinds of changes in life. If you had children, you know, the change that's so in your face with children, whatever age they are. I don't have children, but, you know, the ones that I know. And um, I just, one of my favorite movies recent times called Cherry Blossoms, and it's about an older couple you know, and their children, grown children moved away. And the mother saying as they, they were going to visit the adult children who were all kind of pushing them away, I'm too busy, you know, go do something else. Here's a ticket to this, go do that kind of thing. And the mother saying, I used to know them so intimately. I knew every inch of their bodies. And now I feel I don't know them at all. It's the poignancy of that. 
And so it's, it's very natural in, these, in the face of these losses that there's grief and sadness with these changes. Um, relationships change, objects change, possessions change, we change, our bodies change, our abilities change. So this sense of loss, of sadness is really natural. Grief, sadness in the face of loss, a very, um, even you could say, I wouldn't say necessary, but just natural human response, human emotion in the face of all these different levels of loss. I really saw when my mother died, she died suddenly, I, I didn't get there in time, back to Australia, so sad, so hard, and see the lot, my dad really, you know, he said, she was the love of my life. It's like, mm, just, it's sad. It's so sad. I mean, more than sad. This is heartbreaking. And I really saw that the sharpness of the grief was when every time the thought came, my mother is dead, my mind just went, no. It wasn't even a word sometimes, it was just, no. Don't want it to be so. It's not, you know, don't want it. No, no. And it wasn't until that thought came and something in me said, yes, it's true, that the grief moved into the ne- that next phase. And there's still, of course, the loss, the sadness. Nothing, nothing can replace a mother, someone we've loved who's, who's died. But this, this difference that happens as we start to open to the truth of things. Again, Dan Siegel from that book, Mindsight, grief allows you to let go of something you've lost only when you begin to accept what you now have in its place. We don't want to get stuck in grief, holding on to what's no longer here. There's a grieving process that's natural, that's healthy, but it is also possible to get stuck in, um, in a grieving process, identified with the loss. We need to open to the truth of the loss and what is now here in its place. There's always something. Can we let that in too? Eckhart Tolle in his book, New Earth, tells this little story. As I was walking with a friend through a beautiful nature reserve near Malibu in California, we came upon the ruins of what had been, a, what had been once a country house destroyed by a fire several decades ago. As we approached the property, long overgrown with trees and all kinds of magnificent plants, there was a sign by the side of the trail put there by the park authorities. It read, danger, all structures are unstable. I said to my friend, that's a profound sutra. As we stood there in awe, and we stood there in awe, once you realize and accept that all structures, all forms are unstable, even the seemingly solid material ones, peace arises within you. This is because the recognition of impermanence of all forms awakens you to the dimension of the formless within yourself, which is beyond death. That's the freedom, the happiness the Buddha was looking for. Beyond these conditioned things that are unreliable. We cannot rest our happiness, even in the ones that seem so solid, so permanent. There isn't anything. And then the last reflection could, again, huge, karma. I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma. Whatever karma I shall do for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. 
This is the reflection we do in the Brahma Vihara of equanimity. You are the owners of your, I am the owner of my karma. My happiness and unhappiness depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself or for others. Karma means action. It particularly means volitional action. There's a lot of misunderstandings about this word in, in popular culture especially. You know, instant karma is going to get you as though it's some uh, force from outside that's going to slam you down if you do something wrong. It's, it's not about that at all. It really is about our actions that we do with intention and what we're cultivating in our minds and hearts through those actions, how we're shaping ourselves through those actions. And so it's why we practice so much with noticing intention, because intention is the seed of karma. Intention creates karma. And so things that we do that we didn't, you know, like, this is a complicated teaching, but, you know, if we step on an insect, say, we didn't notice it was there, that's not considered to be a karmic action because we didn't intend that stepping, we didn't intend to kill it with that step. And there can be karma of thought, word, and deed. You know, even our thoughts have a, you know, each one is successively more weighty. We don't want to get too obsessed with this, but they, they do have a conditioning kind of factor. And in the traditional teachings, karma is a lot about rebirth, which again is a whole teaching, practice, understanding. We don't need to believe in rebirth, to see karma playing out in this very life. And you can look at it in, in the form of rebirth, that we're reborn every day. We wake up into a new self. Every time there's a new sense of identification. You know, today you're a good yogi, yesterday you're a bad yogi, or you're a mother, or a, you're strong, or you're healthy, or you're sick. These are all identifications that we get born into and the degree to which we act out of those that conditions the future karmic unfolding of that particular identification. As the Buddha says, that which the mind frequently dwells and ponders upon will become the inclination of the mind. So our actions shape our experience, our experience shapes our actions and there's this cyclical process that goes on. You know, if we act out of anger, if we speak out of ang- in anger, um, it's likely that we'll get anger back and that that will make us more angry when we become an angry person. And the same with compassion or kindness. If we speak or act with compa- compassion, kindness, happiness, it's more likely that that will be the field in which we live. So there's this conditioning factor in uh, karma. It's not a teaching about blame or people deserving to suffer. This is really important to get it. You know, it's not, oh, that's their karma, they deserved that. You know, when people say, oh, she got cancer, that was her karma. It's like, that's so unhelpful way to view this. You know, it's causes and conditions. There's not intentionality around that kind of illness. So really not helpful um, to think of that way. It's also not fatalistic. The teaching on karma is one of us recognizing the choices that we have and how important it is for us to act in our best interests and the best interests of those uh, we come into contact with, to act with um, as much kindness and care. 
Tanisaro Bhikkhu says that instead of promoting resigned powerlessness, the Buddhist notion of karma focused on the liberating potential of what the mind is doing in every moment. Who you are, what you came from, is not anywhere near as important as the mind's motives for what it is doing right now. And that the real power of karma is seeing that with mindfulness, with this coming into the present moment, there's a choice point of changing the karmic unfolding, actually influencing it and directing it in more wholesome or skillful ways. Uh, There are these sayings, they were attributed to the Buddha, but I don't think the Buddha said them, but they still have a truth to them. If you want to know someone's past actions, look at their present situation. If you want to know their future situation, look at their present actions. So really this sense of this conditioning nature of experience. And this other one, again, it's been attributed to the Buddha, I don't think it's so, but it really talks about the care we need to take as we navigate the world, our lives. The thought manifests as word, the word manifests as deed, the deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. So it really is, uh, karma, this teaching on karma is a teaching of possibility, not fatalism, and that each of us have this potential for a karmic unfolding towards greater freedom and greater happiness out of our practice of mindfulness and wisdom. So this is a lot, I know. You know, as I said, I could have taken, made five talks out of these and, and gone into each one. And so I don't want to put this out there as something that, you know, you should be thinking about or reflecting on. But if it's up for you to know that this is, you know, a central practice in Buddhism to actually inquire into, open to, and explore these different truths, these different manifestations of, of reality. So I want to finish with uh, the words of the Dalai Lama, that great teacher and practitioner to put, kind of bring this all together. And it's his uh, teaching on the purpose of life. One great question underlies our experience, whether we think about it consciously or not. What is the purpose of life? I have considered this question and would like to share my thoughts in the hope that they may be of direct practical benefit to those who hear them. I believe that the purpose of life is to be happy. I love it that he says that. From the moment of birth, every human being wants happiness and does not want suffering. Neither social conditioning nor education nor ideology affect this. From the very core of our being, we simply desire contentment. I don't know whether the universe with its countless galaxies, stars, and planets has a deeper meaning or not, but at the very least, it is clear that we humans who live on this earth face the task of making a happy life for ourselves. Therefore, it is important to discover what will bring about the greatest degree of happiness. So how to achieve happiness? For a start, it is possible to divide every kind of happiness and suffering into two main categories, mental 
and physical. Of the two, it is the mind that exerts the greatest influence on most of us. Unless we are either gravely ill or deprived of basic necessities, our physical conditions condition plays a secondary role in life. If the body is content, we virtually ignore it. The mind, however, registers every event, no matter how small. Hence, we should devote our most serious efforts to bringing about mental peace. From my own limited experience, I have found that the greatest degree of inner tranquility comes from the development of love and compassion. The more we care for the happiness of others, the greater our own sense of well-being becomes. Cultivating close, a close, warm-hearted feeling for others automatically puts the mind at ease. This helps remove whatever fears or insecurities we may have and give us, gives us the strength to cope with any obstacles we encounter, like these five subjects. It is the ultimate source of success and happiness in life. So compassion is the result of actually turning to these challenges in our own lives, in others. And compassion, the Dalai Lama tells us, is actually the source of great happiness. So I wish for you a compassionate heart and a happy life. Let's just let the words settle into silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.